Well, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we are in this final chapter, and I would be, I think, remiss in not saying that for the most part, I believe that when people read this chapter, they probably gloss over many of these verses and say, yeah, yeah, what's this really mean? What's this all about? And they kind of approach it like a genealogy in the Old Testament. And while we don't really want to read the genealogy or go back and figure out what it relates to or why it is the way that it is, I think we can also do that in passages like this. And so in this last chapter, in this very lengthy study of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with these final things. And as he's bringing this letter to a close, he's doing some things that are somewhat customary within his writings. But he wants to address a couple of things. First of all, he wants to address the needs of the poor. And this is what we looked at last week. There was a collection being taken up for the saints in Jerusalem who were desperately poor, in need beyond what you and I could even begin to imagine. And Paul established this collection as a priority not only for the churches that were already in process of contributing, but also to the Corinthian church that seemed to be lacking in any kind of motivation to take part in this collection. So it was a priority because of the needs of the believers, and believers are to help other believers in need. And helping the poor is a part of doing the Lord's work, which is how Paul concluded chapter 15. As a reminder, verse 58 of chapter 15 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain or not meaningless, in the Lord. So Paul's interest in helping the destitute believers in Jerusalem was about more than just helping people from his homeland. He also wanted to build a bridge between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who at this time in history had great disdain for one another. In fact, I don't know that there's ever been a people group more more polarized than this individual people group. And so Paul wanted to build a bridge to these Jewish Christians Christians who didn't really care much about the Gentile Christians and an offering to help those in need would certainly go a long way in building a bridge to them. Additionally, Jerusalem is the spiritual homeland of all Christians. This reality is initiated through the covenant that God made with Abraham who was going to be the father of many nations and in whom all families would be blessed. And it is in this Abrahamic covenant Jesus completes all that was required by God and has imparted to us as a result of our faith in Him. Jesus Himself would say that salvation comes from the Jew because this this invitation of salvation was initiated in the Abrahamic covenant and it was fulfilled in Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. So Jesus Himself seemed to make the connection between all peoples coming to know God through the covenant given to Abraham many, many years ago, all the way back in the early part of the book in Gen- of the Bible in Genesis. So in our section of Scripture today, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 12, and we're going to look specifically at Paul's itinerary. And this is very clearly a section of Scripture that many would be 
guilty of glossing over and not really spending a lot of time investigating. So it was very common for Paul to mention his plans or to mention those who partnered with him in ministry in the final words of the letters that he wrote. We find this in Romans, in Philemon, in Philippians, and also in Titus. And so Paul includes it here in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. Let's read this together, verses 5 through 12. Paul says, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. Now, there's a lot mixed into this, and without some intentional study, we would likely miss these things and not really understand all that Paul is saying to a people and a culture that has long since passed that we don't have all the detail on. And so Paul begins to deal with his itinerary as it relates to the church in Corinth. So far more than just Paul giving to them his travel plans, and far more than Paul just seeing people and places, his travel plans contain details about his own steadfast, abounding work in the Lord. And this is where it takes some investigation to to see exactly where this is contained within the Word of God. So two of the primary ways we work for the Lord is in the area of evangelism and in the area of edification. Now this is what Paul's missionary journeys were all about, going to unreached people groups and sharing with them the gospel, establishing church, establishing a church, being a church planter, a discipler, a teacher. But after that was established, Paul just didn't say, God bless you, be on your way, good luck. Paul made it a priority to continually revisit these places, to continually build them up, not only through his own work in the Lord, but to enable them to further their own work in the Lord. So both of these priorities, evangelism and edification, are contained in the travel plans that Paul outlines in these verses. So based upon what we see in verses 8 and 9, it is clear that Paul is currently in Ephesus, This is where he is when he's writing the letter of 1 Corinthians. And he informs the Corinthians of his plan. He says in verse 5, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. Paul wants to visit them, but he will do so after he goes through Macedonia. And as far as Paul is able to discern at the time, this is where he was going to go, and he wasn't going to deviate from that plan. And as he would indicate a little bit later, if the Lord permits... 
So the most direct route from Ephesus to Corinth was by sea. It was a fairly short journey by boat, but it was a more circuitous route, that's a hard word to say, to go the way through Macedonia. And the reason that Paul wanted to go this route through Macedonia is that he wanted to see several of the churches that he has already established and discipled in and taught in, and he wanted to go back and revisit these people. Now, if you remember from last time, Macedonia is a region that was very poor in in many places, and it is in this region that Paul gave great commendation to the people who gave out of their own poverty for this collection to meet the needs of the impoverished believers who were in Jerusalem. But this region also contained the church at Thessalonica, the church at Philippi, and the church at Berea, all of whom Paul significantly impacted, and all of whom were faithfully supporting Paul in his ongoing work through his four mission missionary journeys. So the phrase there that we see, go through, to go through Macedonia, indicates that his plans are just to check in, see how things are going, to meet with some people, to help them as he can and as they need, perhaps even doing some teaching. But he wants to encourage them. He wants to edify them. He wants to build them up as much as he can so they can further and continue their work in the Lord. Now, it's important to note two things that is in this that isn't obvious to us. First of all, is Paul wasn't just concerned about seeing people saved and planting churches. Paul truly cared about the people and he cared about their well-being and their ongoing work for the Lord. It wasn't just enough to put a notch in his belt to say, look what God has done through me, and I feel so blessed that I'm such a good evangelist and church planner. That wasn't what it was about for Paul. He truly cared for these people, and he wanted to do all that he could in meeting their needs and helping them in their journey with the Lord. Secondly, Paul continuously make, made plans of a service in the Lord and the message of the gospel. Paul was always ready for what was next. He was never resting in what currently was. His plans were always contingent on God's will, and as we'll see this in just a few in a few short verses. He was always making plans for the future. Now, in reality, the easiest thing for Paul to do as an evangelist, as a church planner, as a discipler, as a teacher, was to establish a church, stay there, become their pastor, and help churches from afar as much as he could, writing letters and perhaps sending delegates to go with messages. But that wasn't what God had called him to do. And Paul was not about to to veer away from what it was that God had called him to do. And so Paul was always on the go, always making plans for the future as much as the Lord permitted him to do so. So it's important that we remember that, that he was very concerned about the people whose lives were impacted through the message of the gospel and he was always making plans about the future and his deliverance of this life-changing message contained in the gospel. So we see his plan but we also see his desire. Verses 
6 and 7. He says, And perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you just now in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Paul is always careful not to assume that his plans were in fact the Lord's plans. He understood that God was sovereign and God was God was was able to change his plans. God ruled over it all and Paul was very willing to submit to that rule. So it's obvious to us as we have studied the entirety of this book of 1 Corinthians and as our minds go back to the early chapters that we looked at, it is obvious to us that there is a great need in the church at Corinth, and it is filled with significant problems that Paul has identified and addressed all throughout this letter. There is factions, and there is fighting. There is immorality and idolatry. There are abuses in worship as it related to the Lord's Supper and the execution of spiritual gifts and many other significant issues. And so Paul wants to address these things. He's doing so in this letter. He does don't want to just pass through as he is going to do in Macedonia. He wants to visit them and he wants to spend a lengthy amount of time with them because he has dealt with them sternly yet lovingly in this letter and he knows that they need significant time with him to work through the issues and the strain that is in their relationship. If you remember all the way back in the early part of our study, there is this identification of factions that exist. Some preferred Paul, some preferred Apollos, some preferred Cephas. And there is this idea that some are calling into question Paul's apostolic authority and they are disregarding his influence and his teaching and they are, in a sense, setting him aside because they don't like what it is he's saying. Paul recognizes that the healing that needs to come in their relationship and to actually cement the teaching that he's giving to them isn't going to happen with a very brief passing through, but it's going to be dealt with by a bulk amount of time, and that is Paul's desire, is to spend time with them so they can work through their relationship. Now, this is the third time in this letter that Paul has mentioned his desire and his plan to go and visit with them. All the way back in chapter 4, when discussing the false teachers that were negatively affecting the church. Again, in 1134, when discussing the abuses that were taking place around the Lord's Supper. And here... Paul doesn't want to just pass through. He wants to stay a while, perhaps coming around the winter time where travel is very difficult and isn't very likely. And this would give him many months to stay with them and to deal with the issues that were, that were present in the relationship. So Paul's thinking is that after staying with you for a while, maybe you would feel good about helping me and supporting me on my journey back through Macedonia, wherever I may go to spread the gospel message. He was willing to forgo his rights of financial financial support when he was with them, as recorded in Acts chapter 18. But now maybe perhaps you'd be willing to help me on my way as I journey out in service to the Lord. Now notice in these two verses that Paul's plans are contingent on the will of the Lord. And he says, 
as the Lord permits. Now, when he says that, he knows he has made plans, but he doesn't always know the full extent of God's plans for him. And it's very possible that Paul might articulate the specifics of his plans, and yet God may change them. So he has warned them in advance that this is what I'm thinking, but he also says this may not be what God allows me to do. He never knew how God would alter his plans, but he was always willing to submit to the change of plans that was come that would come his way. In fact, this is exactly what happens. God changes Paul's plans, and he's not able to visit Corinth as he desired and as he intended. Now, we deviate a little bit out of our passage to find some of the background that would introduce us more accurately into the second letter of Corinthians we have in our Bible, but we're not going to really dig into that with great depth. So we learn back in Acts chapter 19 that Paul was having tremendous results in his ministry in Ephesus. Many were being saved. There were those who were practicing sorcery, and they were now burning their books. They were confessing Christ. They were disposing of all of their idols, and they had legitimately come to faith in Christ. So if you were to go through and read in Acts chapter 19, in the latter part of that, we're introduced to a blacksmith by the name of Demetrius, who, like others, made shrines for the idol Artemis or Diana. And he and the other blacksmiths have now rallied against Paul because their businesses were crumbling. And in this era, if you didn't like the source of your business crumbling, you would very simply run them out of town. And this is what they, in fact, tried to do. So we read in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, who was bringing no little business to the craftsmen, these he gathered together with the worksmen, with workmen of similar trades, and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business making trinkets for the shrines of Artemis and or Diana. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So the result of the impact that Paul was having is many were coming to faith in Christ. They were turning away from their idols. And these silversmiths or blacksmiths were losing their business. They trumped up charges against Paul. They brought him into the civil assembly. And the result was a riot broke out. Paul would leave Ephesus and then would make his way through Macedonia very quickly and not according to the plan that he had had. So we read in Acts 20, verses 2 and 3, that when after this riot had broken out, when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and then then when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So the mentioning of his time in Greece is widely believed to include a very brief stay in Corinth, not the period over the winter of several months, which they were expecting and he desired, 
And so this very brief stay then became a problem for the Corinthians because you didn't say what you, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. Therefore, we got a problem with the fact you didn't follow through on what you said. Now, remembering that he said that he wanted to come and spend the winter if the Lord permits, but he only stayed briefly, and because of that, they accused him of being dishonest, again verifying the lack of apostolic credibility in their minds and deepening the rift between them. So here's what we read in 2 Corinthians, which is a follow-up to the brief visit the inability of Paul to do all that he intended to do. And so this is what we read as a way of introduction to the rift that still exists between them. Verses 15 through 17a. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? And then through much of this early chapter in Second Corinthians, Paul defends himself and explains with greater detail why, in fact, why, in fact, he could not do these things that he wanted to do. So Paul wanted to visit them both coming and going through Macedonia, but his plans changed as God sovereignly ruled over Paul's life and ministry. The riot that broke out in Ephesus. Paul knew that he was not master of his own life and that he couldn't always go where he wanted to go and he couldn't always do what he wanted to do. This reminds us that God is in control and Paul joyfully submitted to that reality. So Paul now articulates back in 1 Corinthians 16 this opportunity that he has where he currently is in Ephesus. So in verses 8 and 9 he says, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Now he's already mentioned the adversaries that he has encountered in Ephesus. He was seeing tremendous fruit in his stay in Ephesus and he wasn't going to leave until God told him to go even though there were many, many adversaries for him. So he's already talked about fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. And here he talks about the many adversaries that he is facing. So the city of Ephesus was a city full of occult practitioners of every sort. Ephesus had a great system of organized idolatry centered in the famous temple of Diana or Artemis, And in these temples, ritual prostitution and sexual perversion were not only tolerated, but they were promoted in the name of religion. Think about this. A place of worship where temple prostitution and sexual immorality was taught, instructed, and encouraged as a part of of religious expression. And so within the city of Ephesus, paganism, idolatry, occultism, demonism, superstition, sexual vice, with tremendous religious animosity of pagans against Christians, Jews against Christians, and of pagans and Jews against each other, was not only common, but it was considered normal. Think about how much... Religious strife 
taking place within a city and it being considered this is just normal every day to day. This is day to day life. This is what it always is. It's what it's always going to be. And so this was the opposition that Paul is facing in his ministry in Ephesus. Now Acts 19 tells us when he arrived in Ephesus, he began by teaching a few believers and correcting them in some false doctrine. He proceeded to preach in the synagogue for three months. I'm sure wiling up the Jews. And in the school of Tyrannus for two years. During this time, he performed miracles. He cast out evil spirits. He rebuked false exorcists. And the result of this was the crumbling business Businesses who supported the organized religion of Artemis and eventually led to a riotous revolt against Paul with trumped-up charges. And Paul found, listen to this, Paul found great opportunity in the face of great opposition. That's rare. That is incredibly rare. Many pastors, many Christians... Many missionaries will go into places and they will serve and they will find great opposition and they will conclude, God, this surely isn't where you want me to be because this isn't what I signed up for. This is way more difficult than I ever could have imagined. I'm reminded of the missionary Jim Elliott who went to some South American tribe who were known to be cannibals and he was committed to bring to them the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He lost his life. His wife Elizabeth who wrote a book basically memoirs of Jim's journeys called In the Shadow of the Almighty or In the Shadow of Greatness The Shadow of Greatness or the Mighty? What is it? In the shadow of the Almighty. And she recounts the prayers that Jim had prayed, his steadfast commitment to go to this Indian group. And after he was killed, Elizabeth was instrumental in sending other groups into that area. And the result was many people were saved. When we come up against opposition, we conclude, God, this isn't your plan, but that was not Paul's reality. That was not Paul's commitment. Paul found great opportunity in the face of great opposition. In a second letter to Corinth, which we have looked at more recently, Paul outlined the intensity of the opposition he faced. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now many believe that Paul is recounting with detail his experience in Ephesus, what was taking place when he wrote 1 Corinthians, and it isn't until he writes 2 Corinthians that he actually articulates the great difficulty that he faced when he was in Ephesus. So they're all in an uproar about his inability to come to them and stay with them as long as he said he would and as long as they would like for him to. And yet Paul shares with them the absolute death-defying hardship that he faced in his service to the Lord 
But he says, I'm willing to go wherever God wants me to go, doing whatever God calls me to do. And that, unfortunately, triumphs over your desire for me to come and spend a few months with you. Paul was committed to following God's plan, even when it was incredibly difficult. And that is the mark of faithfulness. So visiting Corinth would have been good, but staying in Ephesus was better. So lastly, we see his substitutes. While Paul Paul could not go personally, he was concerned about them because he loved them and he wanted to send to them people who would help them in his absence. Verses 10 and 11. Now, if Timothy comes, and that's not a question of whether he will or not, it's another way of saying now when Timothy comes... So if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to them, for I expect him with the brethren. Now this is a curious preface of Timothy's impending visit that they would not attack him, that he wouldn't be afraid without cause, that he wouldn't be despised, that he would be sent away in peace, not being on the run for his life. So it gives an idea of the kind of friction that existed between Paul and the Corinthian church, and he was afraid before Timothy arrived, and most believed that Timothy was the one that hand-delivered this letter to them. Paul didn't want Timothy to be afraid for his safety, and so he is giving this preface as Timothy is undoubtedly on the way to deliver this letter to them. So since Paul could not come, he was going to send Timothy, and we learn from Acts chapter 18 verse 5 that Timothy was in fact with Paul when he made his way for the very first time to the city of Corinth and saw people saved and established a church and discipled them in the truth. Timothy is not a stranger to them. Timothy was a partner of Paul when he made his very first journey to Corinth. And so they know something about him. They know that he is very closely associated with Paul. But it is clear that Paul is concerned that Timothy will not experience a joyous reception. And this is likely because Timothy is a reflection of Paul and they are very upset with Paul. This is the second time Paul has told them of his plans to send Timothy to them in his absence. All the way back in chapter 4. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And what will he do? He will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere and in every church. So the old saying is, don't shoot the messenger, right? You're not going to like the message, but don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger. That's kind of the way this is. Paul is anticipating a hostile reception of Timothy, this reacquaintance of this person that was instrumental in the establishment of the church not going to go over very well. So Paul is prefacing Timothy's arrival with Paul's interest and expectation. They're not going to treat him harshly, but they're actually going to receive him as a brother. 
Well, the fear is that Timothy would likely face their wrath directed towards Paul, that Timothy would be their target. And so notice what Paul says about Timothy. He is carrying out the work of the Lord just as I also am. So attacking Timothy or attacking Paul is attacking the Lord's servant. And in a sense, it is also attacking the Lord. So after Timothy's visit to Corinth, Paul expected him and the others to join him, Paul, as he continued his work in the Lord. So wherever Paul would be after leaving Ephesus, Timothy and others were going to come and join Paul wherever he was. And this is the expectation that Paul had, and this is why they wanted him, Timothy, to be sent in peace as he left the city of Corinth. Now, Paul doesn't mention anywhere else in his writings to the church in Corinth, how this visit with Timothy went when he delivered the letter, but by all accounts it didn't go very well. That's conjecture. There's no evidence of that, but there's reasons that this is what scholars and commentators believe is actually what had happened. As already mentioned, Paul made a visit to Corinth differently than he had planned. And in 2 Corinthians, we see that Paul sent Titus to them not Timothy, and not even himself, and many conclude that the damage and the relationship was not yet mended. Paul would likely not be well-received. Timothy was likely not well-received and wouldn't be well-received a second time. So in the second letter that Paul writes to the church that we have recorded for us, he sends Titus, who apparently is not seen as an adversary, but perhaps somebody that they would, in fact, listen to. Another indication of, well, let me me stop there. So, Titus being sent because he is likely not going to be viewed as an adversary. Now, there's another substitute that is mentioned here in verse 12. And it says, But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encourage him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now, the phrase... But concerning is likely an indication that in the letter that the church of Corinth wrote to Paul, after the very first letter Paul wrote that we don't have a record of, they have asked for Apollos to come back and visit with them. But concerning that request to have Paul, excuse me, to have Apollos come to us, uh, Apollos isn't very interested. He's not very willing to come now. Perhaps he will come later when he has opportunity. Now this goes back to the factions that were identified within the church in the early parts of the book of 1 Corinthians when they were, Paul was talking about some, some champion Apollos, some champion Paul, some champion Cephas or Peter, and some champion other leaders. And so apparently they prefer Apollos to come back because after all, he was their pastor after Paul and Timothy left, as recorded in Acts chapter 18. But he is busy with other ministry efforts. He isn't ready, perhaps not willing, to stop what he's doing to come to them. And I would venture to say, without any evidence from what I've read, that Apollos probably isn't looking back to his experience in Corinth with a lot of fond memories, and he doesn't desire to go back to a church on fire, if you will, He's he's happy where he is. He's fruitful doing what he's doing. He doesn't sense a call from the Lord to go back 
to the church at Corinth. And so Paul has been encouraging. And Apollos is saying, yeah, I'm not so sure that's in the cards. And that's kind of where it ends. So it's clear that whatever faction existed in the church related to Paul and Apollos and Peter and others, Paul doesn't hold Apollos anyway responsible for that because he would not have encouraged Apollos to go back. And he also calls Apollos a brother who is also busy in the work of the Lord. So as I conclude in this, here's what stands out to me. Oh, that's early. Even in the early church, some 30 years after, 25, 30 years after Jesus was uh, ascended and probably five to maybe ten years after this church was established, very early on, the church of Corinth was an indication that church is messy. Messy church is not a new thing. In virtually every church, there is conflict, there's interpersonal relationship problems. There are leaders who are asked to confront very difficult issues. There are people who resist and rebel against the challenge that comes from leaders who are dealing with these difficult issues. And all the mess that can be a part of church, what should bring the church back together is the importance, the priority of being steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know what I found to be true? Is that when Christians are fighting each other within the church they attend, the work of the Lord is nowhere on the radar. I'm too preoccupied to go to that class. I'm too mad at the teacher that is a part of this problem or the fact that the teacher supports my enemy in this problem. I've got more important stuff going on in my mind than dealing with this gospel message priority thing. we got to fix this first, and I think it's actually backwards. If we prioritize the work of the Lord in our lives individually and in our lives corporately, these peripheral, secondary issues are likely going to take care of themselves as we humbly confess our sin, as we willfully ask for and extend forgiveness, and as we recommit ourselves to abounding in the work of the Lord. The more we focus on Him, the less we're going to focus on ourselves, and the more we will be prepared to do what God has called us to do. But when we want what we want and do what we want, the work of the Lord is often just smoke and mirrors. It's just something we create to make ourselves feel better about our efforts within the church. But that may not really be abounding in the work of the Lord. I believe with all my heart that God is able to do far more than we ask or expect Him to do. And this leads me to two of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Not just through Paul in Ephesus, not just through James and Peter in Jerusalem, not just through the preachers during the Great Awakening, not just through pockets of revival within our world, but everywhere throughout all generations because of the power that works within us to Him be the glory forever and forever. And God's people and God's church should say, Amen. Let that be true 
in me. Let that be true in us. Because I promise you, if we aren't concerned about abounding in the work of the Lord, we won't. And if we aren't steadfast and immovable in the work of the Lord, there won't be any abounding work. There cannot be any abounding work of the Lord. And so what you and I must do, I believe on a regular basis, is be willing to check ourselves at the message of the Gospel and say, not me but you, not what I want but what you say, not what I prefer but what you call, this is who I am, this is what I'm about. The more we do that, the more of an impact I believe God will make in our lives, and the more of an impact our lives will make outside of the safety and the confinement of these walls, which ought to be a source of joy and comfort and peace for us. What we experience and what we delight in, the world lacks and needs. And praise God if they can find it here with us as they embrace the truth of the gospel message. Would you join me in prayer, please?